Hey everyone, my online course on the rehabilitation of the fitness athlete with Dan Pope is on sale this week. If you want to work with higher level fitness athletes and help people get back into the gym after an injury, this is the course for you. Head to MikeRandall.com slash fitathlete to learn more and sign up this week. On this episode of the Sports Physical Therapy Podcast, I am joined by my good friend and mentor, Kevin Wilk. Kevin's the Associate Clinical Director at Champion Sports Medicine and the Director of Rehabilitation Research at the American Sports Medicine Institute in Birmingham, Alabama. But Kevin likely needs no introduction. He's probably one of the most published clinicians and always traveling to speak at seminars and conferences. On this episode, we're going to discuss the current state of baseball injuries and how they've evolved over the course of our careers. Welcome to the Sports Physical Therapy Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Reinold from MikeReinold.com. Hey, Kevin, how's it going? Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. Yeah, it's going great, Mike. It's certainly a pleasure to be with you this morning, and I uh, hope you're doing great. Yeah, no, thanks so much. And, um, you know, I'm excited about this episode. Obviously, you know, you and I, um, I we, we've said that kidding around uh, a few times, but you and I have some pretty cool conversations on the phone or in, and when we see each other at a meeting uh, about some of the, the current states of baseball injuries. And, and we've always said, wow, we, we should just record this conversation. I bet you a lot of people would want to hear it. And well, this is what we get to do now with a podcast. We get to record our conversation, right? It sounds good. Let's, <laughs> let's, uh, let's get into it. Yeah, we certainly have had some conversations, you know, as this has all evolved through the years and, and really how much has changed rapidly in the last five or seven years. Right. Yeah. I, I, I completely agree with that. And I like the, that you use the word rapid there too, because you're right. It is, it's the evolution is, is happening at a pace that we're just, you know, it's, it's kind of mind blowing what we're seeing. As I look back over the course of my career itself, I always think, wow, like some of the injuries that we used to see 10, 20 years ago are a lot different than what we're seeing today. Right. And I'm sure you've seen that. Um, I think maybe sometimes you take for granted the diversity of the types of injuries that you probably see that, you know, when you work, I don't want to say exclusively, because I know you work with more than just baseball players. But when you have such a strong niche towards baseball players, um, you get to see so many different types of things evolve over the years. Uh, why don't we start with that and, and kind of talk a little bit about your kind of perspective of even, you know, generation from the 90s to the 2000s to the 2010s. But, you know, what we used to think was pretty common 20 years ago, I think we're seeing less common now. Can you maybe start with that and talk about how injuries have evolved over the course of your career? Yeah, you know, uh, you're absolutely correct. You're 100% correct. And uh, unfortunately, I can go back to the 80s. <laughs> Those men and late 80s where everything was related to uh, what Dr. Job has taught us. Um, the shoulder and kind of this hypermobility, you know, the Earl, oral Hershiser type of syndrome, if you will, uh, where his shoulder was loose and, and couldn't, you know, couldn't pitch and, and this and that. And we always thought, well, because of this hypermobility, that makes them really good athletes. And if they have a problem, it's, it's always the shoulder and all that has really evolved. You know, when you think about it today, the injuries I see in the clinic, are usually overuse related to the shoulder and kids. And the other thing we're seeing related to the shoulder is not so many problems that go to surgery. I mean, I can't remember the last thrower that had shoulder surgery. Right. Whereas in the 90s, that 
that was the surgery. Nobody operated on the elbow. The elbow was kind of tendonitis and the shoulder was, you know, this hypermobility and, you know, you got to get it tightened up and, or a slap, right? right. When was the last time you saw a slap repair? I mean, <laughs> I can't remember an overhead athlete. Right. Seriously, I go to meetings and I talk about that. And there, I know people are still doing slap repairs and throwers, but it's an adaptation. And it took us 10, 15 years to evolve. Now we're seeing these like blowouts. We're seeing lat strains and lat tears and, and certainly elbows, uh, UCL injuries. And, you know, in the 80s and 90s, that was unheard of. I mean, when I think back on my career here with Dr. Andrews starting in the late 80s, 89, 90, I mean, there was probably 12, 15 UCLs a year. Yeah, wow. Mike. On a that daily was, basis, yeah, that we was yesterday. Stops, <laughs> we see five or six UCLs a day yeah. that just had surgery. Five or yeah. six a day. Yeah. You know, the record here is Andrews one time did 12 in one day. That's uh, impressive. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah. And it's just because I think the velocity has been the game, so to speak. And you've taught us a lot on that. The way the training is, it's all changed the weighted balls and distance throwing. And there, we're seeing more blowouts instead of the ligament just kind of stretching out and not working. I mean, now there's like full thickness tears in the UCL. Right. Um, Even and, in you know, youth and, and younger kids, too, you're seeing these bigger these bigger tears. Instead of the chronic uh, wear and tear, it's it, we're even seeing traumatic blowout type injuries in the young kids, right? Yeah. Yeah. Last week, we had two 14-year-olds that had UCL uh, reconstruction. One had a reconstruction. One had an internal brace. So it's all changing, you know, to your point, and, and it's dramatically changing. It's not like this slow process. It's just, boom, like five, seven years ago, if we look back on what changed five, seven years ago, and it's probably, in my opinion, probably the way we're training and the velocity. Right. And, and, and I think some of the, the concepts of what we do in the off season, just in general, and I, I don't know if it's one specific thing. Everyone's always trying to blame it on one thing, right? We, we've done research on weighted balls. Like, you know, we used to talk about long toss. It's, it, it's probably, you know, nothing in and of itself is evil, but when you put it all together, you, you have to start looking at the patterns and, and scratching your head and say, what are we doing wrong here? Yeah. And also, you know, also, you know, as we've talked about numerous times in meetings, this whole issue of specialization, you know, those 14 year olds that were in last week, uh, they're from, you know, one was from California. Actually, one was from the Northeast up in Maine and uh, they just play baseball. And when right. I asked them to play another sport no, and they look at you almost like nowadays, you know, high school kids, uh, coaches don't even allow them to play another sport. Right. Right. So if they're if they're a baseball player, the coach forces them to specialize at a right. young age and get an off-season program, continue to throw, see a performance person, and you hope that that performance person is on target with what should be done in the off-season. A lot right. of times it's not, as you well know. Right. I'm on social media, and sometimes the reason I am is because I'm catching what my patients are doing. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> when <not> here. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, you know, it's funny. You mentioned in in like the 90s and so you, the shoulder was the big thing. I remember some of those 
those those really big things that I don't think we've seen in decades now. But remember, like rotator cuff repairs in baseball pitchers, like like that's just that that, that to me that's it that's that's a sign that we've evolved from players getting into their 30s, right? Maybe mid 30s and starting to show that degenerative changes that you wonder, are we not having things like rotator cuff tears or, or more of those degenerative things just because we're blowing out so much earlier that we don't have an opportunity to slowly degenerate like that? Um, you know, what, what do you think about that? When's the last time you've seen a rotator cuff tear or, or even more so a repair in a baseball player? Yeah, repair-wise, uh, you know, <laughs> Dr. Andrews still talks about it, that that's the, you know, that's the mother of all the, of all injuries, the granddaddy, I think is what he actually calls it, the granddaddy of all. But I think to your point is you have to last long enough for this to wear out, and probably your elbow will go first, right. um, at least in my opinion. But, you know, I think, you know, some of that is just natural, you know, thinning of the cuff if you're at it long enough. Um, but you're right. I mean we've learned the hard way. And when I say we, I mean, all the healthcare professionals, but particularly orthopedic surgeon is don't operate on a slap. Right. It's an adaptation. The peel back occurs from the arm being back there. The cuff is going to thin, leave it alone. Uh, Do, do some, you know, recovery things after they throw, do some rehabilitation, try to get some tissue changes, nutrition, all those things factor in, leave those things alone. Because if you, if you mess with them, they don't do well post-operatively. The success is very, very low. And we've learned that sometimes it just takes time. Whereas these elbow injuries with UCLs, you know, I think that's a different story. Um, When you're, when your ligaments stretched out, and you're in that late cocking or acceleration phase, um, it's really tough to deal with that unless you really change your pitching style. So do you think we've seen less shoulder surgeries because um, maybe are we treating shoulders better uh, preventatively? Are we um, just realizing that maybe some of these injuries are a normal occurrence? Or do you think like we're just, we're seeing the same types of injuries. We're just realizing that maybe we shouldn't do surgery on all these things. Are we really evolving to different injuries or have we just learned that maybe we over-treated them in the past? Yeah, that's, that's a tough question. I don't really know the answer to that. Um, I think what you said is all true. I think it's all the above to a degree. I think, you know, when somebody has thinning of the cuff now, I think, and they have symptoms and they get an MRI, uh, many times a physician will say, well, we're going to shut you down. We may do PRP or stem cell. So there's a few other options available today that weren't before. So they may try that course and, and maybe allow that athlete to rehab for a while. I think we've gotten better with our rehab for those problems. And I think the physician also has realized a hey, rehab is the best option because if they, I do operate on them, they have a very, very low rate of returning. I think the other aspect is I think you hit it on the head. I think we're just better at training these individuals. So I think, I think you got a better shot at training a shoulder than an elbow. Right. And I think it's, it's a, just it's the a, anatomy and it's a different it's injury the anatomy and the, and the biomechanics that happens when you throw. That right. you're going to stress the heck out of your medial elbow. And the higher the velocities go, the more stress it is. We're at the shoulder. It's a little bit more bulk. You can work on dynamic stabilization, per perception, good body position, good mechanics. I don't, think, I don't think you can change that much at the elbow. 
Right. Right. Um, and I mean, when you, when you hurt a ligament and then the ligament becomes, uh, let's just say, even if it's not torn completely, right. But a partial tear, but let's just say it's insufficient at doing its job. It, it is what it is. Right. I mean, there's not much you can do at the elbow at, at, at the shoulder. It's that balance where they all tend to have poor static stability. It's how do we maximize their dynamic stability? Right. Yeah. No, I totally agree. And, you know, we can maximize dynamic stabilization at the shoulder. We can change things. But at the elbow, I'm not quite sure we can. I mean, we've got the flexor pronator muscle mass over it. That certainly helps a bit. But you're in such a precarious situation. Years ago here at, you know, the American Sports Medicine Institute, when you were here, we did some studies and basically showed in the lab that if you threw maximally, every time you threw, you should tear your UCL. The forces are that great. The reason you don't tear your UCL is, muscle absorbs some of it and bone. So you can tell if you're, you're, you know, your arm's fatigued, you know, maybe you're, you don't have the quite the, the strength that you did, you know, before or later in the season, more stress is going to the ligament. And to your point, it becomes insufficient. I think that's the best way of thinking about it. I think that's an excellent point. Instead of like an ACL that blows out, this ligament becomes insufficient. And nine out of 10 people, well, 99% of the time they're they come to have surgery because they have pain. Right. Right. Most of the ones that I see here now, they about 50% have uh, ridiculous symptoms. That old right. adage that you get numbness, because I think today people pull the trigger faster. Right. I got elbow pain. I've had it now for three starts. I'm not getting over the hump. I got to see a doctor. They get an MRI. They show the ligaments a little bit torn or stretched out. Boom. Let's fix it because 95% of these people make it back. You know what I mean? I think that's the mindset people have. Yeah. And I have a particular minor leaguer now that I've been working with for about probably six or seven years, uh, partial thickness, UCL tear that's probably slowly evolved for six, seven years. And he's at the point now where his velo is down probably five miles per hour. Um, and, and he's just, you know, we text like, you know, weekly, he's just like, I feel great. I have no pain. I have no issues what is wrong. And, you know, what's starting to happen is he's starting to get some lateral, uh, bony issues, right. More than anything else. And, and that's, that's, that's where you start to say like, you know, look, it's, it's great that you don't hurt, but it's pretty clear that your ligament is not sufficient. It's just not doing its job. And then your body has this like governor switch, right? It just doesn't let it go full effort if it can't stabilize those traumatic forces. Right. Yeah, totally agree. And you see stuff lateral. And every once in a while, we even see that the ligament starts to calcify, right? right? And when that calcification occurs, you know this has been going on for a while. I've seen a couple recently where they went in to have surgery, and I saw the, the x-rays, and I'm like, holy macro. You know, <laughs> right. half the ligament is calcified. And, you know, you talk to the physician, and the physician said, yeah, you know, this person's had problems for years on and off. You talk to the athlete, and they're like, yeah, I had a little bit of elbow pain. So some of these individuals can tolerate it. And and one that I'm thinking of now is a high velocity guy. You know, he's a 98 guy and he was able to put up with it for several years. Uh, now, the problem is, you know, they reconstructed it, but his own ligament, you know, a lot of times people don't realize it. They don't take that ligament out. Right. They put the graph on top of your own ligament. And that can be a, a little bit of a pain generator when your ligament is not good underneath because right. of calcification or whatever. Right. Yeah. Uh, and no, I think that's, that's why some people have problems with throwing programs later. They'll say, well, and you, and you start thinking the worst. Sometimes it's just, you know, just the step you got to go through. So, you know, earlier in my career, 
Um, you know, I think if I were to say who was a Tommy John candidate, it was probably somebody in their, you know, low to mid thirties. Right. And they've had that chronic wear and tear on their elbow. Now we're seeing it even in high school, right? It's just getting younger and younger and younger. Um, how has, how are those injuries changed from your perspective? Not, not so much in maybe like what it looks like on the inside, but maybe, maybe how they got into that mess. What's the difference between now and 20 years ago, you think? Yeah, well, you know, I make a point of uh, all of us here, my fellow, my PT fellow, my, my trainer, when we're taking a history on someone that's had an elbow problem, or more importantly, the next day after surgery, we always ask them, how do you think this happened? What, what do you do? Do you do weighted balls? What, how high do you go? How often do you do it? Do you do long toss? How far do you go? What do you do in the off season? And what do you think contributed to those injuries? So we make a real point. Now, again, this is anecdotal. I don't have any stats in front of me, but I'd say probably like 70%, 80% weighted balls, long distance throwing. And when I say long distance, I'm talking 250 and beyond, uh, 250 feet, that is, and beyond. So I, I don't mean, you know, you're going to 180, I'm 250, some are even 300. Now, I, granted, they only touch on it, you know what I mean, as you know, but just for the audience, we say touch on it. They get one or two throws, they bring it back in. It's just like you got out there, now you're coming back in. I still think those one or two have a cumulative effect. Um, I think the weighted balls, if not done properly, uh, not done under supervision, uh, not done in a right dosage can lead to problems as you taught us. I mean, you've done two classic studies on this that everyone should read and maybe even reread to pick up more info. Uh, but I think the weighted balls, I do it. You know, I've been doing plyo since 93. Uh, what am I saying? That was a paper that came out in 93. I've been doing plyo since like 91. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, before that. Right. 1991. Uh, so we started doing plyo throws long before anybody else um, when I was in Chicago and that, yeah, actually, yeah, even be right. Even before the nineties, actually with Vern Gambetta with, exactly. with the White Sox. But, yeah. uh, but at any rate, um, I think it's just different today. I think kids think more is better. I think they're very highly motivated. Their intentions are good. And sometimes it gets off, off target. Sort right. of like that parent that's a coach, you know, they lose perspective sometimes. Yeah. I mean, and th there's a lot about it, you know, the business of sport now. And, you know, I've, I've two young girls that are in the middle of it. So I, I, I see it every day with not only just town sports, but travel sports and these paid programs. I see it, but you know, it, it, it to me, it's, it's, it goes back to what you said about dosage. Right. And I always try to do this, uh, this conversation with the kids and the parents. And it's kind of funny. It shows you that some of the efforts that we did, you know, 10, 20 years ago with education are working and, and some probably aren't. But I always ask the kids, I'm like, would you, um, would you throw a bullpen three times a week all winter? Right. And I let them sit on it for a second. They're like, no, no, definitely not. I'm like, why not? They're like, oh, that's like, it's way too much. I can't do that. That's way too stressful. And I'm like, well, you know, long toss and weighted balls are probably equal to, if not more stressful than that. And you're doing that four or five times a week all winter. And it's mind blowing to them now. They think that these training methods, if you're not pitching off a mound, are essentially like free stress that they can apply to their body. It's crazy that this is the current generation. 
Yeah, I totally agree. I think that's a great, great point. That's a great way of explaining it to that young person because they think the only way they're going to stress their arm is pitching in a high stressful situation, you know, max velocity, high stress, but training is different. I can train. It's sort of like a weightlifter that thinks they can lift heavy each day as they get older and they realize as their body starts to change, I got to make changes in my lifts. And I've always used a weightlifter as my analogy that as you mature, you get smarter, you know, now weightlifters, bodybuilders, they use lighter weights. They use BFR, stuff like that to get, get enhancement instead of beating up their joints because you just can't do it. Same thing with throwing. Yeah. And, and, and you, you try to stress that to them and I don't think they understand it at first, but you know, it. I feel like we're always battling against these themes on social media that are, are just misinformation and, and probably harmful to, to some of this long-term development in our athletes. But, you know, like a good example that I'd love to get your thoughts on here is they say, you know, if you take time off from throwing, you're, you're actually decreasing the capacity of your body to be able to handle throwing. And, and maybe we're having all these injuries because we're throwing too little, which is, I know is insane to you and I, because we see these injuries every day from the people that are doing too much. But, but what do you say when people say that, well, I feel like I need to do that much throwing so I could build capacity in my ligament. Yeah. And I tell them that there's other ways of doing it. Uh, you don't have to throw to strengthen a ligament. You don't have to throw or do a weighted ball to be able to get stronger, increased velocity or transfer energy. So we try to show them other ways of doing it, such as plyometrics, because I think plyometrics is a little bit more controlled type of stress. As long as you keep the uh, the the weight under control, that they don't try going too heavy with a you know one hand throw. And I think you can control your dosage. And it's they don't need a lot of equipment, right? They can get a plyo ball, throw up against the wall, or you get a rebounder if they're really into it. But it doesn't seem to be as much stress as some of these other ways. And we haven't seen, like what you pointed out in your one study in the the Journal of Sports Health with the change in motion, I have not anecdotally seen by doing plyos these changes in motion. Exactly. Right. You know what I mean? And I think because they're not throwing quite as, the effort isn't quite as high. Right. Right. I agree. Uh, I think it's intensity. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. A couple of studies have been done, right, with Rafael Scamilli and myself. Uh, published medicine, science, and sports that basically showed if you did plyometrics, you can increase velocity. You can increase velocity by about two, three percent. If you did exercise, you can increase velocity by about two percent. Now, it's not sexy. It's not cool. It's not as much fun. I get it. It's (laughs) tedious. And, and, And in all fairness, you know, some of that might just be as you get older, you know, even in the months you get better at throwing and your velocity went up. So right. 2% isn't a lot, whereas weighted balls is what, 4, 4.5 as a rule. Um, so I think there's other ways of doing so. I, I try to explain that to them. And I think some get it, some don't. Some are going to have to learn the hard way. I think the other point, Mike, and I'd love to get your input on this, is I think having the surgery now, the TJ, is almost like a, a badge. Right. You know what I mean? They Yeah, for sure. They point to it. Yeah. I, there's a certain group of people that look forward to it and they're like, Oh, thank God I got this out of the way. <laughs> right. Or, or, you know, and, or maybe it's timed appropriately, but, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's certainly changed where people think it's inevitable and what a shame, right? What a shame we got to the point where we say like, look, just train so hard that you blow out. It's inevitable. I mean, that's not true. It's not inevitable. It's inevitable if you train like that. Right. Yeah. And I think two is, 
that what I meant by a badge is it, it means that I'm, I'm pretty good. If right. I had that surgery, I must be a good pitcher because the big leaguers are having it. Look, I got it too. <laughs> right. Before it was, you know, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, you had a TJ, you were kind of freaking out. I had surgery. Am I going to make it back? Now it's very nonchalant. <laughs> right. As you mentioned, it's, I got it out of the way. A lot of them still think they're going to increase velocity as a result right. of having the surgery. <laughs> well, I, I know a lot of bad baseball pitchers that had Tommy John surgery, so it's definitely not uh, con- <laughs> congruent with <laughs> congruent with you have to uh, uh, have right. surgery to be a good baseball pitcher. I don't know. That's a correlation versus causation uh, argument, but uh, but yeah. <laughs> You know, going going back to the debate on capacity type thing, you know, I I always I try to explain it where you know a ligament is a lot different than a muscle, right? How do you how do you build a quad up, right? Is you break it down to build back up. That's how a muscle recovers and then comes back stronger. With a ligament, especially during a throw, when you're working towards failure with each throw, um, I I don't think the ligament builds back up the same way. It's almost like it just continuously partially tears. And if you look at the study that came out a couple summers ago, um, showing like ultrasounds of the ligament over the course of a season and off season, it shows over the course of a season in everybody that the ligament gets looser and engulfed. And then over the course of the off season, if you take enough time off, that laxity comes back down and it actually decreases back in size. Like that, that almost swelling, that interstitial swelling goes, goes back to normal, which to me, that might be the most important paper in the last two decades for baseball. And nobody's talking about it because it shows that, you know, throwing again is stressful and that taking a break is needed physiologically on the inside. Right. So, you know, I, I mean, am I off base with that concept here that I think a ligament doesn't build back stronger to stress like when you're working it to max failure every time? And is it different than a muscle? We'll be back after a quick break. I hope you're enjoying the podcast episode. If you want to learn more from me, please check out my website, MikeRinald.com. In addition to all my great articles, videos, and podcast episodes, I have a ton of online CEU courses as well as my inner circle online mentorship and community. Be sure to subscribe to my free newsletter where I'm always sending you great info and exclusive perks and discounts. Just head to MikeRinald.com to get started. Thanks so much. Yeah, it's definitely different than a muscle. It's different than a tendon. Um, And I think to your point, how do you get recovery of a ligament? How do you tear down a ligament? And whether it's a ligament of the MCL of your knee or your ankle, you know, your anterior talofibular ligament or UCL, I think the principles are the same. You certainly wouldn't take an ankle and and keep inverting it, inverting it forcefully and think that's going to be good for the ligament. (laughs) You you would probably freak out because the concern is with ankle sprains. And all you have to do is look at enough ankle sprains is once they have a couple of bad ones, that ligament becomes insufficient, right? A big anterior drawer is there. Same thing at the knee. It takes a long time for that MCL of the knee to become unpainful and all or non-painful, I should say, and also have better stability. I mean, studies from Duke that studied MCLs for years and Dr. Fu and Dr. Wu from the University of Pittsburgh basically showed it's like a six-month proposition to your point. Right. So load and I don't say unloading, but controlled load is really important. I think nutrition, I think we've missed the boat a little bit on telling kids what they should do for ligament health long-term as well. Um, I think in time we'll get better, but I think to your point, 
the ligament changes due to stress. And I think somewhat rest, active rest is really important. Right. Yeah. And, and, and it, it still boggles my mind that that narrative is being perpetuated online, that, that you, you need to work a ligament to failure to have it build back stronger. It's, it's, it's crazy. Mind. Yeah. Yeah. And total, total crazy. You yeah. wouldn't do that with an ACL. You wouldn't do it with any other ligament in the body. So why right. do it at the elbow? Right, exactly. And, and, and it's crazy. So, all right. So we talked a lot about injuries, right? And I, I like at the very beginning, you said how what we're currently seeing is a little bit more traumatic in nature. Use the word traumatic, which I really liked. And if you, if you even just go back and think about what we've talked about, a lot of the things we saw 20 years ago were degenerative, atraumatic wear and tear over time. Now they're a little bit more traumatic. Um, can you expand on that a little bit? Like, what are you seeing now? And how do you think your approach to treating baseball injuries has changed over the years? Yeah, you know, as I mentioned, I see, you know, years ago, we never saw lat strains. Um, right. and lat tears. Yeah. Now, you know, see a bunch of them, a lot right. of lat. And some of that too. is training and some of that is actual throwing. Uh, but I think, I think we probably see because of a combination, um, uh, the, the kind of the blowouts at the elbow, so to speak. Um, those are probably the big ones. I mean, you still see some shoulder discomfort, usually in the high school kid, what you see is kind of front and back. It's kind of that looseness type of thing. And it's usually due to kinetic chain, you know, weak, weak hips, weak legs, poor core, bad transfer of energy, hypermobility in the scapula. That's kind of what we normally see in like a high school, lower level thrower. And I say lower level just hasn't quite reached their peak. I don't mean, right. you know, skill level, but I mean, physical maturity, right. um, as they mature, I think they get a little bit better, but as they get in college and, and the elite, that's where we start seeing that mi- macro traumatic, whereas everything before we thought about it was micro. The macro was the football injury, you know, the tackle, right. the shoulder yeah. dislocation, the lacrosse injury. And, and, you know, again, Dr. Job would always say, you know, it's always micro instability, micro traumatic injuries, overhead throwers. Now I think it's changed a bit. Yeah. And, and you think that's because of all this max effort training? Is that what you're saying? Max effort in 11 months, 12 months. Right. Right. I mean, if they do 11, I'm really happy, actually, because they're they're doing they're doing 12. They're doing 12 months because they're afraid to take time off. Uh, And the reason they're afraid, right, is they're going to lose velocity or their coach is going to get upset or their performance trainer, you know, has them committed into doing things in a in a schedule, which is great. I I get it. I love schedules. I love, you know, year round exercise, but it just has to periodization, you know, periodization and changing the formula based on the time of year you don't have to fall ball drives me crazy i gotta tell you right fall ball (laughs) (laughs) i don't get it yeah yeah what's the advantage of fall ball what do you Uh, think well there's fields out there and if they're not rented they're not monetized and so we have to rent the fields well you know what they're doing you know it's funny we talk about this in baseball but i think hockey is way worse right now i'm up in new england so it's different down there but these kids are skating 11 months out of the year i yeah. do not want to see what their hips look like but you know why they do that they for if you want to run a, a hockey program you say like hey can i rent the ice x yep. times a week this winter they say sure but you also have to rent it the fall and the spring and we won't rent it to you so then if you rent it you have to then do practice right 
right? And then yep. you have to skate, and it's and it's it's this evolving thing. But you know, it's but, I don't know. You know, the really. model that people should consider is football a little bit. Yeah. Because what's happened in football until two three years ago, spring and summer, there was no control. I right. mean, there was contact. There right, were three right. a days. Right. Now, <laughs> even at the college ranks, they're limited to their exposures, right. and the reason they're limited is because people were dropping like flies. Right. What do you, what do you want contact in football, like in right. spring and summer, you're just right. going to beat up your body. And then by the time <laughs> fall comes, you're not ready. Right. Again, that's collision sports. I get it. But to your, you know, to your point with hockey, as well as baseball, your body ha- needs some recovery, right? It just can't withstand that beating. It's just like weightlifting as well. Right. Yeah. Everything for sure. And, and as you get older, you, you need that recovery time even more, but, yep. um, ha- have you noticed this? You know, I, I think, uh, pitching is, is sexier online. Like people like to train pitchers and, and, uh, show what they do for pitchers. But I think the hitters are like just behind the pitchers in terms of like trying to change their training and what they're doing now. And everybody's focused on exit velocity, right? And rightfully mm-hmm. so, right? The harder you hit the ball, the greater your chance of getting a hit, right? So exit velocity, launch angle, all these fun things. You know, what I'm starting to see more and more this last year or two is we're going back to batter shoulders. So posterior yep. instability from all this max effort swing, all this swing that's happening in the winter now, because you can't, you can't take any time off. You have to be just be working on this exit velocity all the time. Are, are you seeing that too? Or is that just something we're seeing up in New England? No, I agree. Yeah. I have uh, two kids right now that have struggled. Uh, they've, they've kind of dealt with it at the school level. One's in high school, one's in college but they almost have the same type of mechanism, not only shoulder, but that kind of rib scapula, you know, lack yeah. kind of problem in their lead shoulder, just oh, from boy. all the swings, all the swings and, and doing, as you mentioned, velocity training for bat speed. Yeah. So it's always just how hard can I swing over and that's over right. for, for months. And it's, that's, that's not what people used to do in the winter. That's, that's changed too. Yeah. I think if we change, you know, what's worked for me, uh, I'd love to hear what you've done with those is obviously calm the tissue down, soft tissue, work on mobility, mid, mid back kind of mobility, but I've gone to more plyos with those people, Mm -hmm. two hand throws and things like that. in the old, you know, kind of getting their hips engaged because I think they're so quick to kind of segmentally rotate with a bat, which is different than plyos. Um, and it's worked pretty well. Have you done similar things? Yeah. I mean, same, same concept with the rehab concept. I I think the bigger thing for us just, just comes back down to workload management, like over and over again. And, you know, I, I think the majority of players that we see with this, they tend to be like middle infielder, center fielder type people that they dive a lot. So, you know, it is what it is. They probably have some instability. I think what it shows you is that either they're doing too much um, or they're fatiguing out their dynamic stabilizers. And then it's just, it's just not, it's not going well. Right. And, and what happens with a hitter? If they're in a slump, what do they do more? More hitting. <laughs> of course. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, more and BP. <laughs> so, I mean, let's do some early hitting tomorrow and some late hitting tomorrow. Right? Let's just keep going. <laughs> but, uh, it's, it, it's crazy what they do. Um, and, and I wish they just knew that they're probably not swinging well because they're tired and they're not stabilizing. Yep. So, yeah, no, um, great points. No, I, I totally agree. 
Um, I, I, I know you got to go. I know we, we got just a few short minutes. I want to get to our high five, but I got one quick question I want to ask. We had Dr. Dugas on recently for a podcast episode. He talked all about the UCL internal brace. I know you've probably rehabbed rehab more of those than anybody else. Can you just quickly just mention like how, how, how's the internal brace procedure going from your perspective as, as the rehab clinician? And, you know, is this becoming the new gold standard or, or where do you think we are with that? Yeah, you know, I, I base it on uh, on several things. I base it on, you know, the first couple I saw in my, kind of my mindset, but also the opinions of other physicians who were more skeptical, perhaps. So for me, I, my nature is to be a little bit skeptical, a little bit cautious, and then move from there. Uh, the physicians who jumped on the internal brace right away, they were very excited about you know, shaving time off They're right. back to pitch in five to six months. Right. And, you know, I came from, you know, the reconstruction and nine months, year type of mentality. So I was like, wow, half the time, it's kind of freaking me out uh, to be able to throw, you know, some people say throw at three months or even 10 weeks. It's just, right. I'm still trying to wrap my head around that. So generally, you know, for me, I'm really surprised and I probably shouldn't say surprised, but I'm delighted and surprised how well these have done actually. Right. Right. Uh, they've done a lot better than what I anticipated. Um, I think it is about 93, 95% success rate. That's right. Some studies are a little bit less than that, but I, I think if you do everything right, and let me even go out on the limb and say this, if somebody did the protocol correctly and you slowed them down just a little bit, and told them that, look at the big picture and not how fast you can make it back. I think you can get up to the 97% success rate. Yeah. Wow. Right. Now, I, longevity is another issue with that. I, I don't really know. Uh, but it appears that they last. Some of the physician friends of mine that deal with baseball almost ex, you know, exclusively were resistant in the beginning. And they're kind <laughs> of, right. you know, they're kind of into it a little bit now. They, they yeah. think there's a place for it. So I use them as a barometer as well, just because I, I don't want to look at the world through my eyes only. I want to, you know, what you think and what some others, I don't want to mention names, but what some others think. And when they start saying, well, you know, it is pretty good, then I know it's just not my little world that uh, these people are doing pretty well. But I will say this to people that do the internal brace rehab, don't be afraid to slow down the protocol right. to throwing. Look at the big picture. Right. You know, you have surgery in june or july and you don't have to be ready till the spring right i mean give it some time you don't you don't have to be throwing at 12 weeks right you can slow it down and do other things yeah and you know that i know you've done that same approach yeah i i I remember when this was early on we definitely talked on the phone and we were both like why are we going so fast right and (laughs) we were we were we were so nervous about it at at the time and you know i think the point that you know i try to get across with with some of these kids especially if they're high schoolers right like at at 10 weeks i still think they're physically not ready because just 10 weeks ago they looked like crap going into surgery i mean i i I can't do that much success in terms of building back their strength and all these things after after rehab in that period so i'd love to take a longer approach if we can um you know and i i I, you're right i i I haven't seen any bad outcomes yet i mean it's been going great yeah and you know some are even doing a hybrid now you know which is kind of interesting but you know it doesn't speak to just the internal brace but an internal brace with a reconstruction for some of the, the more chronic 
scenarios like the big leaguers have been around for a long time. So, you know, people need to realize that. I think the other thing, you know, maybe for the, the viewers to take in is what's going on with ACLs. Mm-hmm. You know, more and more data is coming out that if you just push it back a little bit. So, you know, I'm a, I'm a six month guy. That was always my target to get you back at least getting into a practice scenario at six months after a UCL, uh, excuse me, after an ACL. Now, more and more data has been shown that if you wait eight months, nine months, your re-injury rate starts to drop dramatically. Something is happening. And I think it goes back to what you mentioned about the ligament. You know, there's this ligamization. The ligament has to lay collagen. It matures. There's MRI studies now on ACLs that are looking at them at six months, nine months, 12 months, 24 months, and they look different. Right. They look, they look yeah. different. Even a couple months makes a big difference once you get further out. I think that's true at the UCL as well. I would love to see more serial. I know we're doing ultrasounds on it because it's superficial and you can get it and ultrasounds are cheap and you know easy access. But it'd be interesting to see some MRI studies of the colonization and the right. ligamization of the ligament over time. Yeah, that would that would be amazing. Awesome. Well, Kevin, thanks so much. Um, I like to end with a quick high five segment with five quick questions, five quick answers, really just getting inside your head a little bit, showing your growth mindset, that sort of thing. I just think it's a it's a good experience for, for people to hear. But let, let's let's fly through these real quick. First okay. one is, what are you currently working on for your own professional development? What what have what have you learned lately yourself? Well, I'll try to be quick, but, uh, you know, some of these <laughs> things that, that we talked about with training, uh, stress, tissue remodeling, uh, some of the newer modalities. I'm looking at more force play data now. Functional testing in particular. That's a big interest of mine. We're changing. And probably the biggest area is the cognitive motor. Right. Um, yeah. That's where yeah. I think it's at for me is the cognitive motor. Yeah, I love it. I like that. What's one thing that you've recently changed or evolved your thoughts on? Uh, probably workload. Uh, workload with not only exercise, but throwing. I think your program that you've done with your interval throwing program, I like a lot. I'm trying to get physicians to, to appreciate it better, but workload, especially yeah. with the interval throwing program. Right. I like that. What's the biggest piece of advice that you like to give your students and fellows that are, that you're working with each day? Uh, open mind, listen, uh, ask questions, no stupid questions. I've asked the most stupid questions. Just ask Dr. Andrews of anyone <laughs> on, on the planet. I attest um, to that. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, uh, you know, the last thing is, you know, I go to meetings all the time and, you know, I, we had our football course last weekend in, in Florida and I'm sitting in there and it's just amazing to me to be quite, quite direct about this. How many times people kind of walk out on talks and they, uh, I kind of know this subject, right? Every talk I've learned stuff, you know what I mean? Right. There's always, there's always a nugget in there, a right. perspective. I mean, seriously, it right. just drives me nuts when people go to meetings and they, they attend hardly any of the talks and they're in the right. hallway more than they're in the, I mean, the networking's fantastic, but taking the talks, some of these talks are going to surprise you. So right. open mind and listen. Right. And you look in the front row at some of those big meetings and who do you see? It's like, it's George Davies. It's yeah, right. Lynn, Lynn Snyder. Mackles is always in the first row. Like yeah. I said, you know, it's, you know, Chuck Thigpen. Those, those are the people that are always up front, you know, and it's, it's interesting you say that. So that's awesome. Uh, what's coming up next for you? What can, what can, what can we expect from Kevin Wilk? 
Yeah, I'm going to say, uh, you know, I'm, I'm trying to change the way we do functional testing, um, both upper extremity, because obviously probably a lot of people on this podcast are into baseball because of your expertise and so forth. But we're doing a lot of the cognitive motor testing now. And I'm even doing it with throwers in my UCL. So in a high plank, we use the blaze pods. And not only are they just reacting to the lights, but we're making you react with the extremity corresponding to a light, mm. if that makes sense. Sure. So a higher level of function. So you got to process, react, and move properly. The only challenge is, you know, we're doing some of these in a high plank. Some of them we're doing up against the wall. I, I want to get it more throwing specific, if right, you know what sure. I mean. Yeah. Yeah. But right a, now it's hard. more stability and body yeah. position specific. It's just not throwing specific. So right. uh, we need to talk on the phone and in person and figure this out together right. because uh, it'd be really cool to have, especially for the young kids, reactive testing to right. see where they're at from a, from a neuromuscular standpoint. For sure. Yeah. We've learned so much about the ACL. I, we got to start applying that to, to the shoulder and the elbow for sure. Um, awesome. Well, great stuff, Kevin. Um, I, for those that don't know, Kevin obviously uh, has a bunch of educational content out there. Uh, he's on Instagram. Uh, you're doing, you're still doing a ton of those, those free Zooms where you're doing all these great educational content that's out there for everybody that people really need to be taking advantage of. Still traveling all around the country teaching, but where can people find out more about you? Where's the best place to go to learn about Kevin? Yeah, probably the best place to go is Instagram. Uh, just my name, Wilk underscore Kevin. I try to post some of the seminars that we're doing and and the grand rounds. Mike, you've been on the grand rounds. We, we've got some really good experts in various areas and it's a free uh, Zoom I want to say hour, but it usually goes a little <laughs> bit longer than that. Yeah. Uh, probably about 90 minutes and uh, it's great. It's interactive. We get you to participate doing live seminars still through uh, Northeast seminars and certainly try to speak at national meetings as well. Awesome. Yeah. And, you know, be sure to check out Kevin. If you're at a big conference that he's speaking at, you know, obviously make sure you attend his session, but uh, his seminars are, I mean, they're, they're top notch. They're some of the best out there. If, if you want to, you know, dig in deep on the knee and shoulder, be sure to go into uh, one of his seminars if he's coming near you. So uh, Kevin, thanks so much for sharing your uh, vast experience with overhead athletes with us. That's great. I appreciate it, Mike. I had a fun time flew by and uh, thanks so much for what you've done. Uh, with our profession. Uh, certainly, I want to encourage you to continue your research and your guidance, not only in baseball, but just training and rehabilitation as well. All the stuff you put out there is super high quality and really appreciate it. It's a great contribution to our profession. Awesome. Likewise. Thanks, Kevin. And I'm sure we'll have to get you on a future episode and we'll we'll talk more. We could, we could have went for hours. Sounds good, buddy. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. And please share this with your friends to help spread the word. It would really mean so much to me. Please check out all my online courses, articles, newsletter, and more at MikeRano.com. There's always a ton of great perks for my newsletter subscribers. And also be sure to search for my other podcast, The Ask Mike Reinald Show, where my team of physical therapists, strength coaches, and I answer your questions. See you on the next episode.